Imagine a scenario where you're in the mood for a true crime podcast. You take out your headphones and press play on the first recommendation. You're excited to delve into an eerie and chilling case. Is someone missing? Is there a conspiracy about to be uncovered? As you listen to the beginning, you're met with a startling surprise. The podcast sucks. And now imagine that you're listening to a different podcast, one that exceeds your expectations. The storytelling is well done. The details are thoroughly researched. The music is chilling and unsettling. And then there's the best part. You get to listen to my deep and creepy voice. When you listen to Still Unsolved, you get to join us as we bring the true crime genre back to its roots. Every week, we highlight different cases of missing persons, wanted felons, unsolved murders, and the truly bizarre occurrences of life. Subscribe to Still Unsolved wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and join us. With your help, some of these cases may no longer be an unsolved mystery. You're listening to True Crime Feed. Welcome to True Crime Feed. I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcast from the past decade, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. Up first on the docket, here's a show from the archives I think you will really enjoy. Let's discuss the case for Dead End, a New Jersey political murder mystery from WNYC Studios. Here's a synopsis from Dead End. New Jersey politics is not for the faint of heart, but the brutal killing of John and Joyce Sheridan, a prominent couple with personal ties to three governors, shocks even the most cynical operatives. The mystery surrounding the crime sends their son on a quest for the truth. Dead End is a story of crime and corruption at the highest levels of society in the Garden State. Before you listen to the series, go to thetruecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. Key players this week are the victims John and Joyce Sheridan, their son Mark, Jersey power broker George Norcross III, and our host veteran shoe leather journalist, New Jersey native Nancy Solomon. Alrighty, we do have a lot to go over today, and I gotta warn you up front, this ain't gonna be a fun trip to Six Flags Great Adventure kind of ride, but this story is mind-blowing. It's the kind of story that'll have you looking over your shoulder like you know too much. Let's get the worst of it over right away. We will start at the night of the murder. It's September 28th, 2014. Local Montgomery first responders get a call about a house fire at the end of a cul-de-sac on Meadow Run Drive in the quiet suburb of Skillman, New Jersey. When rescue workers arrive on the scene, they see smoke coming from a second floor window. The front door is unlocked and they follow the smoke to the master bedroom. But there's something obstructing the bedroom door. It's a heavy armoire. They maneuver it up and out of the way to discover the body of John Sheridan. He had been stabbed to death along with his wife of 46 years, Joyce Sheridan. After putting out the fire, the first responders are left with a bizarre scene. 
There is an empty gas can and matches clearly used as an accelerant. Plus, multiple knives are found close to the bodies. The medical examiner later noted that Joyce Sheridan's body had 12 stab wounds, mostly on her head and hands. The cut that pierced her aorta was thought to be the lethal wound. It was also determined that Joyce died before the fire. Her cause of death was clearly murder. John Sheridan had five visible stab wounds, mostly on his neck and torso. They appear to be made by a different kind of knife than the one Joyce was stabbed with. The probable fatal wound was a puncture to his jugular vein. Unlike Joyce, soot was found in John's lungs during an autopsy, along with elevated carbon monoxide levels in his blood, which suggests he had been alive when the fire started. The medical examiner deferred listing a cause of death because they were not able to determine if this was a suicide or a homicide without further investigation. Eventually, though, they ruled this a murder-suicide. Their reasoning? Because the door was blocked by the armoire and the stabs to John appeared to be, quote, hesitation wounds. They also made this determination based on the additional evidence that $950 was found on the bedside table, and there were defensive wounds on Joyce's hands, but no defensive wounds found on John. The surviving Sheridan family, they are outraged at this conclusion. The circumstances of their parents' death is already beyond tragic, And now to tarnish their father's name, accusing John of murdering his wife is a next level living nightmare. But what is the alternative? Who on earth would kill this respected couple in such a safe neighborhood? Investigative journalist Nancy Solomon has some theories and they are uniquely Jersey. I'm not well-versed in New Jersey life. I know the typical stereotypes from pop culture, the Sopranos, Jersey Shore, the tired trope about it being America's armpit, but I'm not gonna make assumptions or take cheap shots at the citizens of New Jersey. Cause I've seen how y'all drive when you're here in Maine and frankly, I'm terrified of starting something with you. I am going to talk smack about your state's government and its history of corrupt politics. Instead of the slogan, the Garden State, or Liberty and Prosperity, the motto of New Jersey could be, Here comes the bribe! Stepping outside of the series for a moment, I wanted to understand this phenomenon of corruption in New Jersey politics. The state certainly isn't alone, I'm looking at you, Illinois, but man, New Jersey's epic Game of Loans history and lore runs deep. I found that starting as far back as the 1870s, two Jersey police commissioners were accused of awarding contracts to fictitious groups. A century later, the mayor of Jersey City was convicted of collecting millions in kickbacks. That's millions in 1970s money. That's a lot of Taylor Ham pork rolls, baby! There was that state senator convicted of soliciting bribes in return for school construction contracts. More like schoolhouse racketeering. There was that famous FBI sting operation from the 70s, Ab Scam, that took down the mayor of Camden and several other government officials. You can hear all about Ab Scam on an episode of the swindled podcast titled The Sting, or watch the two-hour, 18-minute movie American Hustle. 
cough way too long. Cough should have only been a 90 minute running time. <coughs> Sorry guys, allergies. And of course there's a long, long, long history of the mafia in the tri-state area. You know, Jack and Jill go up the hill and make it look like an accident. They were the original hashtag influencers. Controlling business and political figures with their artful, persuasive techniques. An envelope full of cash or you disappear. Either that or Jimmy Hoffa is just really good at hide and seek. The list of scandals goes on and on. And it's hard for Jersey to change its ways, reverse direction, especially when you're not allowed to make left turns on the highway. Hey. Anyway, what were we talking about? Oh yeah, senseless killing. Here is why Nancy Solomon is sus about the Sheridan murder-suicide theory. Anyone who knew John, the 72-year-old distinguished grandfather married to his wife for 46 years, would also find it impossible to believe especially since there had never been any signs of domestic violence or indications that there was trouble in their marriage. So that meant someone murdered John too. But why? Who was John Sheridan? From humble beginnings, he first came onto the Jersey political scene working at the Attorney General's office. After that, he took a position in the governor's office and climbed up the ranks to eventually become the transportation commissioner in the 1980s. John Sheridan was well known for streamlining the industrial rail lines in New Jersey, transforming them into one of the largest commuter rail systems in the country. He was on then-Governor Mary Todd Whitman's transition team, and later he was a lobbyist. As for Sheridan's newest role, he had recently taken the position of CEO for Cooper Medical Hospital. Oh, and he's also on the board of Cooper's Ferry Partnership, a nonprofit organization focused on advancing the city of Camden. More on that later. Despite being so well connected to Jersey politicians on both sides of the aisle, he maintained a clean, respectable reputation. A clean politician in New Jersey? That's more rare than a soft-spoken Italian. Relax, don't get your pantalones in a bunch. I can say that, I'm Italian, and when my whole family gets together to make tortellinis, the smoke alarm could be going off and no one would hear it. And speaking of smoke alarms, the Sheridan children were immediately suspicious of the crime scene. Day one, they are called in for questioning. For some reason, police want to search son Matt Sheridan's car. They find drugs in the vehicle and arrest him. Eventually, it was determined that there was no probable cause to search the vehicle, and Matt is not charged with possession. But this sets the adversarial tone of law enforcement versus the surviving Sheridans. The Sheridan children immediately assumed that their parents were killed by an intruder, and they expect law enforcement to be scouring the area for the murderer. Instead, police release a statement that there is no threat to the public. The family is also highly dubious of the first autopsy that determined John's cuts were, quote, hesitation wounds. So they decide to get a second opinion, hiring their own forensic pathologist who determines that the fatal wound to John's jugular was made by a stiletto-like blade. Unlike the first autopsy, this guy found a long, skinny puncture wound that made a cut to the jugular. It could have been made by a stiletto-style switchblade or something similar. 
Side note, stiletto switchblade knives are illegal in 16 states because of how lethal they are and easy to conceal. Yay, another thing to be terrified of. No instrument that could make that type of cut was found near the scene of the crime. And it's kind of hard to fatally stab yourself and then hide your murder weapon. Lots of other key evidence was completely ignored. So much that if I told it all to you, this episode could have a longer running time than the movie American Hustle. So, let's explore an abridged list of inadequacies, shall we? The crime scene unit did not dust for fingerprints. When the Sheridan children are allowed inside the home, they discover the bloody rug that their parents were killed on was rolled up in a corner and not taken into evidence. Oh, and also, none of Joyce's blood is found on John. Even though there was blood on the stairwell, in the hallway, on the ceiling, pretty much everywhere else except on John. There's even blood spatter evidence suggesting that John was stabbed at the top of the stairs. Oh yeah, and I almost forgot. You know how they determined it must have been a murder-suicide because the only door to the bedroom had been blocked by an armoire? Well, guess what? There's a second door to access the bedroom, hidden behind a rack of clothes. Evidence collection and improper chain of custody in this case was absolute tomfoolery. An insurance adjuster weeks later found a bent fire poker on the premises that the original investigators completely missed. It was laying in a heap of other items rescue crew pushed aside in the bedroom to get to John and Joyce Sheridan. John was later found to have broken ribs and a chipped tooth. They originally attributed those injuries to the fallen armoire, but perhaps those injuries could have been made by this out-of-place poker. Police also failed to interview key potential witnesses. The Sheridan family later discovers that a neighbor had seen a suspicious-looking car circling the dead-end cul-de-sac a week before the murder, at the exact time of day it would later take place. Also, also, there was male DNA collected at the scene that was not John Sheridan's. Also, 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 his driver's license was found on a college campus an hour north. Just a jumbo dog load of inconsistencies and baffling evidence that disprove the murder-suicide theory. I don't know about you, but I am convinced at this point that these two were clearly murdered by an outsider. But what is the possible motive? I forgot to mention when John became CEO of Cooper University Hospital in Camden, that put him in the orbit of the super-powerful George E. Norcross III an insurance broker worth an estimated $245 million. Norcross has been a prominent New Jersey political fixture and business leader for over 30 years. He is a member of the Democratic National Committee and thought by many to be the most powerful unelected leader in New Jersey. Definitely a hashtag influencer. Take a look at this guy in the visual aids. I won't say anything disparaging about anyone's looks because that would be wrong, and also he would totally send legal after me. Friends and family have stated that there were arguments between George Norcross and John the week before he died. Over what, question mark? Let's get ready to rumble in Camden, New Jersey. 
I didn't know much about Camden before this podcast, but I do remember a meme of that scene in The Lion King where Mufasa and Simba are sitting atop a ledge surveying their kingdom, and little Simba asks, What's that dark shadow place over there? And Mufasa answers, That is Camden, New Jersey. You must never go there. Wow, that was way harsh, Mufasa. But Camden is in need of a super home makeover. Since the 1970s, Camden has had one of the highest crime rates, murder rates in the country, and is one of the poorest cities in the U.S. Suffice to say, Camden has had some dark times and really needed some love. And lucky for them, there are New Jersey politicians there to help with tax incentives for big corporations. In 2013, then-Governor Chris Christie signed the Economic Opportunity Act. Essentially, businesses can relocate and develop real estate in Camden for better deals than you can get at Wawa Market. Any money developers spend gets matched dollar for dollar in a tax credit. That would be all well and good if not for the fact that these businesses had zero requirement to create jobs for the residents of Camden. Oh, and they can sell their tax credit for cash. It's basically a free buildings program. Camden real estate is a diamond in the rough. There is beautiful frontage on the Delaware River with skyline views of Philadelphia. Primo area for fancy office buildings. George Norcross has his eye on a few places, and let's say he's got some muscle behind him. The Economic Opportunity Act was sponsored by George Norcross's brother, Donald, who was a state senator at the time, and now he's a member of Congress. Oh, and parts of the bill were written by other brother, Phil's law firm. It's a real episode of Family Ties. Sha-la-la-la. Okay, remember two minutes and 45 seconds ago when I mentioned that John Sheridan came into George Norcross's orbit when he took the position of CEO at Cooper Medical Hospital? I forgot to mention, ya boy George was the chairman of the board of trustees for Cooper University Healthcare System and Cooper University Hospital. And he was essentially John's boss. Georgie boy had his eye on an office complex on the Camden waterfront called L3. The plan was to develop a state-of-the-art hospital and medical school, which in turn could attract more private investment to the area. This place was move-in ready with all the meaty tax break benefits and rent-free for 10 years. L3 was Camden Real Estate's Silva Tuna. One analysis at the time projected that L3 could generate $4 million in profit within the first 10 years. But someone else wants L3, the nonprofit group Cooper's Ferry Partnership. They are essentially a business improvement association or a Main Street alliance. Cooper's Ferry Partnership wants to use the income from the L3 property to fund community programs, things like farmers markets, and improve or build new parks in Camden. And remember, John Sheridan was also on the board of Cooper's Ferry Partnership. He used his hashtag influencer political connections to help them purchase L3 from the state of New Jersey. Okay, this next part, I'm going to try to be very careful with my words, but to have things really spelled out for you, pay extra close attention to episode six of Dead End titled On the Camden Waterfront. Here's the gist. There were documents all about the sale of the L3 buildings on the table of John Sheridan's house at the time of his death. Later, the family discovers a paper trail showing that the Norcross brothers had, quote, opinions. 
about this sale. And perhaps Cooper Ferry Partnership should not be in the real estate business. Maybe some of the Norcross's other business associates would be better fits to buy the complex. Despite asserting their hashtag influence, it appears that there's evidence John Sheridan sided with Cooper's Ferry Partnership. And I'm going to also make clear here that there is absolutely no evidence that George Norcross, his brothers, or anyone else associated with him had anything remotely to do with the deaths of John and Joy Sheridan. In fact, he even spoke at their funerals. But there is some evidence that George really likes to get his way. And it's the subject of some secret recordings called the Palmyra Tapes. A Palmyra city councilman wore a wire and recorded George Norcross hashtag influencing him into firing a city employee. On the tape, Norcross can be heard boasting about his hashtag influence over Governor Jim McGreevy and then U.S. Senator John Corzine. Norcross wanted the councilman to fire a fellow named Ted Rosenberg, who was running against a Norcross favorite to head the local Democratic Party committee. I'm not going to repeat the cusses, but Norcross can be heard on the wire saying, quote, I want you to fire that truck. You need to get this truck, Rosenberg, from me and teach this quirk off a lesson. He has to be punished, end quote. Yikes, yeah, pretty scathing evidence of potential corruption. But oh, look, the Palmyra tape case disappeared. No charges were ever brought against George Norcross. Apparently, no Jersey political figure wanted to hold that hot tomato pie. Journalist Nancy Solomon does a wonderful job laying out the story without handing you the answers. The murders are not solved, but I walk away from the series feeling like I know exactly what happened. Nancy walks us into the Dead End series with the story of another murder of a political figure in New Jersey, where a rival consultant admits to hiring two hitmen to assassinate a city council candidate, Michael Galdieri, in 2014. The hitman confessed to stabbing him multiple times and setting his house on fire. Nancy's a total pro on her show, and she doesn't speculate wildly about what she thinks happened, but the wild west of the internet has a lot of assumptions about the Sheridan murders. The most interesting theory I found was that not only was the Galdieri murder and the Sheridan murder similar in its M.O., there is potential evidence that they are directly connected. The murder weapon knife was also missing from the Michael Galdieri homicide scene. Later on, one of the hitmen goes on to commit a robbery at a bank, and a long-bladed skinny butcher knife was spotted in his vehicle. Mark Sheridan urged investigators to test the knife for DNA to see if it was used as a murder weapon in his parents' homicide. As of this recording, he has not gotten a response. Nancy Solomon shared an update on Twitter on April 27, 2023, an article from NJ.com that there is an active probe into Camden corruption. A number of subpoenas hint that the investigation will focus on tax credits and economic development incentives. That comes four years after a state task force investigated deals connected to power broker your boy George Norcross. On March 8, 2023, he made an announcement that he is taking a step back from politics. I really appreciated Nancy's reporting. I'm not familiar with her other work, but this series is going down as one of my all-time favorites. She went where the story took her, looking into political figures from both sides of the aisle doing old-school shoe-leather journalism. 
Her reporting reminded me of the journalists from the Spotlight team on the Boston Globe. This reporting also reaffirms my complete disdain for politics. After listening to Dead End, a New Jersey political murder mystery, I couldn't help but wonder. Are these powerful political magnates designing things to be this way? Are they throwing a few meager crumbs down, manipulating us to fight over the scraps? When maybe all along, the guys with the most money and the most power make the decisions for us. And now if you'll excuse me, I'm just going to go sob in the shower with my clothes still on. Okay, I'm back. Sorry, just needed a little attitude adjustment. I'm sure you have a lot to say about today's episode, especially if you're from New Jersey. I would love to hear your take on all of this. Email me directly at Angela at the truecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and be kind to fellow True Crime Feed friends. No table flipping, all right? Stay tuned until after the break to hear my podcast power ranking of the week. Hey, True Crime Feed listeners, I have a teensy little ask of you. I need your help to grow my audience so I can keep the stories coming. So I'm asking you to take a moment and share True Crime Feed with five friends you think will enjoy the show. Like a fun, awesome pyramid scheme, but you still get to hang on to your money. Cool. And if you want extra gold stars, go to Apple Podcasts and write a review for True Crime Feed. I am an independent, one-woman show, and you taking a moment to do this will help me grow and compete with the big networks out there. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Now, back to the show. And we're back. Here are the three shows currently trending on the charts that I think are worth your attention. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. Quick note before we start, I wanted to mention that I'm still hanging out on Death Island. It definitely isn't a perfect show, but a very interesting listen. My number three pick this week is more of a cringeworthy, binge-worthy listen. So without further ado, the number three podcast of the week is... The Billionaire Murders. Here's a synopsis from the show. The Billionaire Murders goes on the hunt for the killers of Honey and Barry Sherman, probing the strange case of the famous Toronto couple who were found strangled in their North Toronto home in 2017. For five years, the star's chief investigative reporter, Kevin Donovan, has covered the Sherman case, fought court battles to access documents on the police investigation and the Shermans in their estate, and he wrote the book about it. This podcast lets you hear directly from Donovan and his sources, those who worked on the case and friends and family of Honey Sherman and Barry Sherman. Last I looked, this show was ranking number one on the Apple podcast true crime chart, so it's definitely a bingeable listen, but the storytelling is not great. In fact, sometimes I'm laughing along with the narrators and their endearing thick Canadian accent and the dated theatrics of the show, but that doesn't mean this podcast isn't super entertaining. Give episode one a listen for about 10 minutes, and if you can get used to the narrator's style, you will have a fun time with the billionaire murders. At the number two spot, we have Scamanda. Here is a synopsis from the show. Amanda is a wife, a mother, a blogger, a Christian, a charming, beautiful, bubbly young woman who lives life to the fullest. But Amanda is dying. 
with a secret she doesn't want anyone to know. She starts a blog detailing her cancer journey and becomes an inspiration, touching and captivating her local community as well as followers all over the world. Until one day, investigative producer Nancy gets an anonymous tip telling her to look at Amanda's blog, setting Nancy on an unimaginable road to uncover Amanda's secret. Yes, first off, awesome name, Scamanda. As of this recording, episode one just dropped two days ago, and I've been waiting for this show since the trailer came out. This is a captivating setup, and I can't wait to see if the full story lives up to the Scamazing name. And at the number one spot, we once again have silenced the radio murders. Here's a synopsis from the show. A chilling wave of murder sweeps through Little Haiti, a Miami neighborhood that is home to many Haitian exiles. The victims are radio broadcasters using the airwaves to demand democracy at home. Little Haiti is up in arms, calling for justice for the fallen heroes. But the investigation stalls. To this day, the masterminds remain free, and rumors persist about cocaine trafficking, CIA assets, and transnational coups. Okay, this show is definitely still my number one, but I need some time in between each episode to debrief and frankly brush up on my history of Haiti. I kind of felt the same way when Hamilton came out on Disney Plus and I had to keep pausing it and looking up the key players. Wait, who's Lafayette again? Silence the Radio Murders is an active listen, but it is a unique and important story that is worth your time. Now for my miss of the week. We have Deadly Diocese from Wondery. Here's the rundown from the show. Deadly Diocese unravels the cover-up of the mysterious death of Father Joe Moreno. Driven by Father Joe's twin sister's unwavering determination to get justice for her brother, an unlikely friendship with an outcast priest and the autopsy tech who, along with famous Dr. Cyril Wecht, exhume the body, perform a second autopsy, and find disturbing evidence that should prove this could not have been a suicide. Okay, here's where my old Catholic guilt is going to come out. When does this go away? I feel terrible critiquing the narrator slash reporter of this show, especially since this is such a personal story to her. But it is a hard listen. The writing, the pacing, the interview style, it's just not connecting for me. I keep thinking that my podcast player was rebuffering because there were so many unusual pauses. A compelling story premise, and I applaud her for doing the work, but I just couldn't stick with this one. So unfortunately, I'm going to have to send Deadly Diocese down my podcast queue trap door. Oh, I feel bad even pressing the button. Pod, forgive me. Find out next week if Silence, the radio murders, will continue to claim the top spot three weeks in a row or if another show will swoop in and take its place. Let me know what trending shows are in your top three and what show fell through your podcast queue trapdoor. I'll be back here again next week dusting off another stellar true crime show from the archive for your next feeding fix. That's all for today's true crime feed. 
Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to listen to True Crime Feed. Thanks for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice and join me next week for another feeding.